Welcome to another episode of Kidon, War Stories from the Cutting Edge of IP Monetization. My name is David L. Cohen. I am the owner of Kidon IP, a consultancy, and David L. Cohen PC, a law firm, where we provide IP monetization services to clients both large and small. Every episode, I interview other subject matter experts and leaders in the wide world of prosecuting, asserting, analyzing, monetizing, and defending IP rights. You can find this show on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. Today, my guest is, is John Geringer, and we're going to go out a, a little bit out of my comfort zone, hopefully into John's comfort zone, um, and talk about what he does. John is an old friend and has, been, has an extremely interesting practice and fascinating practice, even if it's not IP. That said, uh, his area of expertise seems to have become even more interesting and timely in the past few days. John is the regulatory uh, section leader of the Financial Institutions Group at Barrick, Parizano, Kirschenbaum, Nagelberg, LLP in Chicago, and concentrates on regulatory governance and investigative matters involving financial institutions. He teaches financial services law at Chicago Kent and also teaches national security law and is the founding co-director of its Center for National Security and Human Rights Law and its Consortium for the Research and Study of Holocaust and the Law. He's the editor of an upcoming book called Countering the Financing of Terrorism, Law and Policy, and the co-editor of an upcoming book involving Holocaust and the Law. So, John, like many of us in the law, you in the modern practice of law, I should say, you wear many, many hats um, as a lawyer, forgetting even your personal life. And so if you had to pick one, what do you say is the primary practice area of practice area of focus, or focus of your practice, at least as it relates to money making or time spent working? <laughs> well, thank you so much, David, for having me. And it's, uh, you know, a couple of old friends shooting the bull. It's uh, it, it's really an honor to be on your show. So thank you so much. Yeah, I, I wear, like you said, a, a bunch of different hats, but my my day job, uh, the partner, uh, my partner hat now <laughs> is uh, I, I'm a serious. Yeah, I'm a recovering regulator, bank regulator, um, who now works on the other side, in effect. So um, what I do is, uh, in connection with just about anything regulatory that a bank touches, um, is my work. And, and so that can mean everything from starting a bank to daily operations of a bank, mergers and acquisitions. Unfortunately, 10 years ago, we saw a lot of bank failures uh, dealing with uh, just about every aspect of public policy you could think of because they all involve banks, right. whether it be uh, terrorism finance, uh, cybersecurity, ESG, um, you name it. Uh, you know, banks ha have become part of our fabric of our society and, and therefore government regulations have really mandated that banks get engaged in, in public policy. And so, um, you know, for someone who, uh, you know, was a, a bank regulator who saw these things on the government side, right. now, in, in effect, what I get to do is is to, to play ambassador. You know, I, I talk to the bankers about how the regulators think, and I talk to the bankers about how, re you know, back and forth to the, the regulators, regulators the bankers. Bankers think. Yeah. And, and so, in, in effect, my, my role is very similar to that of an ambassador, knowing that at the end of the day, our clients are the banks and, and you know, I have to uh, fight for them uh, as hard as uh, I need to. But right. um, th there is a balance. It's, it's not quite the guns blazing kind of litigation that you see in many other areas of law. Right. E even when dealing with the government, because sometimes, you know, when dealing with the government, 
um, private sector doesn't worry about their relationship with the government. It's it's not going to be long lasting. Here, when you're a regulated entity, you have this longstanding relationship with the agency. Right, and so right. you come in guns blazing and scorched earth, and you could create some serious problems with the relationship. No, totally. And it, it undermines the human aspect. And so you're not just dealing with, with statutes. You're dealing with all different levels of regulation across multiple states, probably, and, and the federal government. And you're probably also dealing with a, a huge <laughs> Having dealt with the bureaucracy of various government agencies and other contexts, you're probably dealing with a huge human element that sort of the unwritten law that's not even in 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 in, in uh, well that in that's fact. a great way to put it because uh, as as you mentioned I teach banking law as well and many of our students are foreign students and I have to explain our complicated sometimes anachronistic uh, banking law structure and you know I explain to them that there are statutes there are regulations there are interpretations but then you also have the secret law. And you need to have, and you and I are old enough to know what this is, a, a very good Rolodex of, of regulators where you can just pick up the phone and, and get answers to those questions that lie in the seams between existing law. Because as you can imagine, especially in the context of banks engaging in uh, fintech, financial technology relationships, cryptocurrency, all of these AI, all of these really innovative things, uh, th there are great gaps in the law. And, and so, you know, the, because the law hasn't caught up to reality, having good relationships with regulators um, around the country in Washington, D.C., uh, and also good relationships in wearing my other hat with law enforcement, uh, military and the intelligence communities, even sometimes when we're talking about terrorism issues, uh, it can be really helpful. No, totally, totally. And, and so who, who are your sort of typical day job clients? Yeah, if there's about 5,000 banks around the country, our sweet spot are mainly the community and regional banks. There's a whole bucket of other banks called SIFIs, you know, significantly important financial institutions, the the, the big banks like they're called, mm -hmm. we do slivers of work for them. But for the most part, we, we deal with the smaller community banks. And by small, I mean as small as 20 million, which is a very teeny tiny community right. bank. Uh, but also we represent about... Um, a uh, little less than 20 uh, publicly traded banks um, who are, you know, in multi-billion dollar institutions that that can be around the country. And and so we do their securities work, their corporate work. You know, I do their regulatory work. Uh, basically, we're, we're a one-stop shop for those banks. And in many ways, sometimes we are their outsourced general counsel. Got it. Got it. And I see, you know, in, in, my, in my little world of IP, um, I, you know, there's a pendulum swings on regulation back and forth and what is preferred and whatnot. And it seems to me that that sort of uh, the regulatory eye has come again and, and small is better and, and things like that seems to be sort of at least the official the official ma mantra, even though that's not necessarily the case in reality. Do you see the, a trend? We There was a trend along, as you mentioned, I think, before we started of um Consolidation in the banking industry and the mega banks and cross-border mega banks. Do you see a trend in the opposite direction, such that there's going to be more of these smaller and community banks or your clients, as it were? Well, what's happened is since I uh, became a banking lawyer 25 or so years ago, you know, th there were about 14,000 banks then. We're now down to 5,000. And a lot of that has to do with the consolidation you mentioned. Uh, a lot of that has to do, you know, we lost about 500 banks during the last banking crisis. Mm -hmm. I had expected there'd be a lot more 
during the COVID crisis, which never happened, and we could talk about that. You know, strikes me that the PPP program uh, gave a, enough of a sugar high for mm-hmm. banks and their customers to survive the pandemic. But the you know the banking industry continues to consolidate. It's it, it loses about four percent a year. And, you know, you can do the math and see where those trend lines are. It, it used to be the case that when banks merged, their officers would go off and start what are called de novo banks, you know, new banks. But that process has become very cumbersome, time consuming. And, and so th- those people now just go out and buy existing banks. So you don't have as much. There, there are some de novo banks and we, we continue to uh, establish. Uh, we just established one this year called the Women's Bank. Um there have been um, we, we've done about 150 de novo banks ourselves, and and that was primarily in the in the 90s and and in the O's or the aughts or whatever they're called whatever, whatever call that it. decade is called. Um, you know, we only see a smattering of that right now, even around the country. And so, um, even with the um, sort of like the virtual banks, I don't know what they're officially called, but like those uh, those entities that allow you to do stuff on your phone and they don't really seem to have brick and mortar or anything anymore. Are those yeah, new or are even the ones that don't seem to have brick and mortar do have some elements of brick and mortar. You know, the regulators are still not very comfortable with internet only institutions. Mm-hmm. And and you're also grafting old laws on new concepts, right? right? So you may be familiar with the Community Reinvestment Act. That's from when I was in kindergarten from 77. And, and you know, that was meant to encourage lending investment and service in low and moderate income areas within a bank's assessment area. How do you define an assessment area when you are across the country and virtual? Right, right, right. So, you know, and, and, and the regulators are modernizing that framework. And, and so, uh, you, you know, coupled with the fact that you've got banks now having these relationships with these fintech companies where, where they are trying to find ways to be more innovative, you know, when's the last time you went to a ba- bank branch yourself, right? Um, you know, and, and now everyone has a bank branch uh, right here on your phone right. and you can conduct just about anything there. And so, again, like everything else, the regulators quite haven't caught up to the innovation. They're, they're getting right. better at it. They're getting smarter at it. But, um, you know, great leaps forward are happening right now. And, and you know, the government needs to attune themselves to it. I mean, the other thing we're seeing is, is that, you know, the, the, there are political angles to bank regulation. Primarily, we see that in the context. Yeah, shocked, shocked, right? I mean, the interesting thing is, for the most part in bank regulation, it is relatively stable uh, because a lot of these concepts are risk management concepts, like you're not allowed to lend uh, too much to a certain person. You you can't have all your eggs in one basket, things like that. Um, You can't have certain uh, relationships with your affiliated organizations, and you can't uh, give sweetheart deals to your officers. So that usually stays the same. But but there are elements of the bank regulatory world that you can imagine change with every administration. Right. Fair lending and redlining analysis are, are clearly one of them. Right. Those are trendy topics now. Yeah. And the pendulum has swung probably as much as anyone has seen, right, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And, and so we're, we continue to uh, talk to our clients as as to how they they need to be nuanced and sensitive to those things, and 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 those issues even bleed into mergers and acquisitions because in the context of bank M and A, uh, the public are allowed to comment, 
and right. the public can say something along the lines of we we think you are not doing well with respect to right. fair lending the public has been very much invigorated in commenting i just did uh, uh my own public comments um, with antitrust stuff and, and and patents and there were hundreds and hundreds of comments that were just shocking like how many comments in a two-month period but some of them are quite detailed I mean, so i totally see where you're coming from but speaking That's of pendulum pendulum shifting it seems that your other area of interest um, is, is shifting even faster. So let, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So tell us a little bit about your work in, in national security and human rights law. And, and first, I guess, what, you know, pre this entire, the current craziness, um, you know, was it mostly uh, academic and public advocacy or were you actually having private clients and, and engaging some sort of private law type of activity in that space? Yeah, good question. I've always been fascinated with national security issues. Uh, my folks grew up in Europe and, and you know, were faced with the issues in, in World War II. And, and so I've always been a real history buff, really interested in, in warfare and things like yeah. that. Met everything I could on terrorism. And so I almost went into that field and I decided, ah, I'm going to come home and be a lawyer and get a real job. And, and then what wound up happening is, you know, as I mentioned, so many public policy issues affect banks that I was able to find a way to, to get back into that field um, and, and still have that actually help my your, day job. Yeah, your so, day job yeah. so we go from banking to anti-money laundering to terrorism financing, and then from terrorism financing to national security. And, and so the contacts I make and the knowledge that I glean um, from the national security world definitely help me uh, with our clients. So for example, uh, we, we do... Um, events with our clients where I bring in, for example, the Secret Service to talk about uh, cybersecurity, or mm -hmm. I bring in the Department of Justice to talk about cryptocurrency and things like that. So it actually winds up to be very helpful. And, and th that was happening so much that we eventually, myself and a couple others, started a center where I teach. So I teach banking law at Chicago Kent Law School uh, for about 15 years now. And having had a relationship with the school, a couple of us who are interested in national security started a center there called the Center for National Security and Human Rights Law. And we've got some really neat people involved, people who've prosecuted at the War Crimes Tribunal, people who um, are, are Department of Justice terrorism prosecutors, people who've worked in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, as a, as a JAG Um and, and so really fascinating people. We got them all together and we teach a class on national security law at the school. Uh, and we also teach a class on Holocaust and the law. So an element of this national security law center is called CRUCIAL, the Consortium for Research and Study for Holocaust and the Law. We finally came up with that acronym after some other ones that were a little inappropriate and I won't mention them on your podcast. We can talk about them <laughs> later after, uh, you know, after this. Um, That's for the adult beverage podcast. Yeah, exactly. So um, so what we're doing with the center is we have uh, webinars, we have seminars, and uh, we, we also have a certificate. So we have a cryptocurrency certificate for basically the non-techie type. So we're, we're trying to address every aspect. Of that's very that's very trendy stuff. The cybersecurity. I know in IP, it's very, uh, very um, trendy with respect to trade secret protection and stuff like that in, in the trade secret context. You have to show that you've taken reasonable measures for it, in fact, to be a trade secret, which begs the question, what's a reasonable measure in today's day and age? And so you have to show that you've done your cybersecurity diligence. And so it sort of bleeds into a lot of things. So, you know, maybe if you can afterwards, and I'll put it, in, I'll put it when I post the, the blog, if you can send a, some links 
to um, the center and the, and the I know I know some folks who've taken cybersecurity courses online, but a certification might be interesting. So yeah, and and we have one one of the folks who, who's uh, involved in that used to be an Army JAG who led the Army's efforts in both cybersecurity and intelligence. So wow. you can imagine the wealth of knowledge he had, and he worked in the private sector with uh, NIST, which which is the agency that that comes up with some of these standards. Um, yeah, I work with standards all the time. I, <laughs> I know NIST yeah, very you're, well. you're used to them, right? But but what I'm saying is, we have the best of the best who are you know generating That's content really cool. along those lines. And then, as I mentioned, that Holocaust and Law Center, what we're doing is we're developing what we think is the first comprehensive curriculum on teaching aspects of Holocaust and the law. And we're, we're not doing it because of our fascination with history, although we do have that, but it's really for lessons for today. So, so, uh, so I, is, that, is that law during the Holocaust, why it was elite, things were illegal, or is that law today like um, you know lost property or restitution, things like that, or is it both? Yeah, it's every aspect of it. So we're going to talk about the uh, the war crimes trials, and there, there were a bunch of them, both the the famous Nuremberg. There was one famous Nuremberg trial, and then 12 more after that. Uh, you may have seen the movie Judgment. Yeah. That, that was one of the subsequent trials. That actually was not the, the main Nuremberg trials. Right. And there were domestic trials in Israel and in Germany that people may be familiar with, Demyanyuk. There was also uh, restitution, art restitution, and, right. and art restoration and, and monetary restitution. There, there were... Um, well, there was a whole profile the other day about um, sort of art restitution, not in the context of, of, of the Holocaust, but in the context of colonialism or, or I, I don't even know what you would call it because it might even be pre-colonialism, adventurism, stealing stuff from other countries. Yeah. And every country's done it, right? We all yeah. have each other's art. Um, the, the the Holocaust art issue is fascinating, and and so that's one element of it. The the other thing, as I said, we, we were going to have a, a chapter uh, where we talk about lessons for today. So what are what are some of the things that we should be thinking about in this country? So for example, there was this concept that Professor Luban at Georgetown talked about called Spielraum. And I, I speak German. Uh, Spielraum is your, your ability to play around. You know, some people pejoratively may call it the deep state. Others may say, okay, you know, to the extent you are working for an administration that does things that you think are improper, uh, like the old song says, you know, should I stay or should I go? Mm-hmm. And if I stay, you know, to what extent can I work within the system to, to blunt the, the the improper or malign aspects of an administration I may be working for? You know, and a lot of this came to head, obviously, in, in, in the context of uh, Charlottesville right? And, and, and seeing, you know, what what our society is becoming when people can openly say Jews will not replace us and, and saying nice things about Hitler and, mm-hmm. uh, and and the like. And so a few of us, especially, as I mentioned earlier, myself, I'm a Holocaust survivor's kid, you know, ha- having seen um, ha- having seen it through my father's eyes, you know, t- to wonder what kind of society we're becoming. We, we think that that by creating this curriculum on Holocaust and law, it, it can be very impactful in, in various arenas, not just in law schools, but with the military, with police, to think about everybody's role in society uh, as, as to how we should all govern ourselves. Right, right. No, no, there's a, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but in the interest of, of, of not spending all day on the podcast, I want to talk about something that's very current. And I think we, we talked about it briefly. But the I, I think the current wave of sanctions against Russia, uh, especially the financial ones, seems to be like 
the perfect combination of all of John Garringer's interests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and it's been it's been fascinating to watch. I mean, I, I've been, you know, as a banking lawyer, I've been t- talking about thinking about sanctions since I started. Um, sanctions, you may be aware, are administrated here in this country through the Treasury Department. It's called the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which right. has been doing this stuff for a very long time. There, there's some fascinating stories about, you know, World War II and, and earlier how, how we've used economic sanctions as a tool of our government, part of the many tools in the toolkit, uh, non-kinetic. So, you know, that's not the same kinds of issues when you're actually putting boots on the ground. But it's been, um, you know, depending on who you ask, it's it's been an effective part of many tools with respect to countries like North Korea and Iran and unplugging them from the banking system. And and now, um, you know, with respect to Russia uh, and, you know, some of these sanctions have been in place since Crimea, since 2014. Right. And, and the ratcheting up over the last week has been re- really incredible to see and, and taking them out of the SWIFT network and, and these various things where you can cause. It seems to have caused a, across almost a Rubicon here, you know, um, you know, sort of to bring an analogy to from national security. It's like we, we set off a controlled nuclear. We set off a Hiroshima. There might still be a Nagasaki. I forget which one came first, but um, it was, was that right? Yeah, all right. So we, and there might be a Nagasaki, but now, now what? Like after Nagasaki, now what? Like, do we have mutually assured destruction? Do we have some sort of salt treaty? Like, what do we do? Like, so we're not doing that. Yeah, th- this is like uh, if you watch the movie Spinal Tap. You know, if right. you're already at ten, can you go to eleven on on the uh, amplifier, right? Um, and and so I, I think there still is room. There's still other sanctions to do. We haven't yet sanctioned Putin himself. We, we've certainly sanctioned his cronies. Uh, we've decoupled Russia, you know, in effect from from the international banking system. That there are still ways around it, just because he's off a of swift. Uh, which is really just a messaging system for, right. for more fluid transfers. There are other ways to get around it. Um, you know, he can, he's got relationships with China where they're developing. Um, other which, alternatives. which points to a weakness in the fundamental thing. The more you, the more you, you escalate the economic sanctions, especially like when you're dealing with North Korea, it's one thing, but you're dealing with the 11th largest country in the world and you're dealing with the economy in the world and the second largest economy in the world, China. I think it's the second, right? Yeah, um, I, I think we're twenty trillion. I think they're fifteen or so. Right, and so like, and they're highly incentivized to decouple from us anyway, currently. So if you're creating these incentives, if they decouple, you sort of undermine the strength of the sanction. Well, and you undermine our ability, right? We dollar-based transactions have historically been the way to do things, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when you hear people saying, "Why isn't Biden?" taking the maximalist approach from the beginning, I, I think it's that concern over blowback. I mean, the more we use some of the stronger tools in our arsenal, the, the more other actors will work around them. And therefore, that'll cut off our ability in, in, in future events to be able to use sanctions as an effective tool. So that's exactly right. And and that's why I think there there's some reticence of going to, if we can use Spinal Tap, going up to 11. Right. Uh, Unless we really think we need to. Now, th- this is, you know, the the greatest land war in Europe since World War II. I, I think we're at the point where we're just about at 11. There, there are a few tools left on the sanctions front. And then beyond, you know, once you've done everything you can on the sanctions front, you know, some of these things take time to work. Take time through. to have impact, right. 
yeah, th things, some things happen instantly. Some things take time. You know, some of these restrictions being put on international flights in Russia and, and export controls being placed on, you know, their ability to get for military hardware. I think they're still heavily dependent on a lot of components from the West. That's right. Not even military hardware, but just their planes, right? How are they going to get their plane serviced and, and things like that? So in, in effect, creating an environment where they can't fly outside of their own country. Right. Uh, so between the economic sanctions and the export controls, it, it really puts a lot of pressure on them. And, you know, you're seeing these brave men and women in the streets who know that they could be arrested or sent to the front just for protesting. And yet they're doing it. You know, right. I'll leave to the experts on how much pressure that can put on Putin. You know, but I, I did go back recently and started uh, refreshing myself on how the Soviet Union died. Mm -hmm. And if you if you you know go back to that and you see those cracks were formed uh, by those public you know those brave public protests, and you know whether that impacts the oligarchs, how that impacts Putin's inner circle, you know whether they would ever feel like they can uh, do an Operation Valkyrie like they tried to do against Hitler, you know I think the more pressure that's put to bear, the more those thoughts come to light. You know, and I think there's sort of two there's two issues that sort of concern me because you know the, the Ukraine thing is, is, is the Ukraine situation is, is is very tragic on many levels. But what 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 has me concerned, I guess, is you've taken a lot of stuff out of the bag um, that are now like it's once you once you use a weapon, it's like less and less uh, fewer and fewer speed bumps to using it again. And so on, but I think there's sort of two levels of the weapons used that we're talking about there's sort of country level and then there's individual level you mentioned the oligarchs right and and so on a countrywide level i'm very concerned that um this not become sort of like the usual play and uh, you know like you have a disagreement and then you go to you go to you go to 11 immediately and so do you do you sort of see some sort of process coming out or do you hear anything about some sort of process where people are going to create these sort of rules of the road on how to use these sanctions going forward? You, you know, I think those 10 or 11 or even eight, eight or nine sanctions have, have only been used and calibrated, I, I think, very in, intentionally. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, they, they've been used, obviously, the, the biggest ones have been used against North Korea and Iran, which are really, you know, obviously two of the more problematic countries on right. the, you know uh, on the international stage and and so i think we we try to be mindful of those blowback issues what's been interesting to me is to see the extent to which we are finally getting better and smarter about winning the informational war against right. russia you know for years you know those of us who have been following it have seen how R russia has used active measures and infiltrated our our politics Right. And, um, you know, our country has gotten a lot better and, and Biden's use of declassifying intelligence that we thought we'd never see and open source intelligence sources on the ground. I have created this really interesting environment where we are now going more on the offensive on on the um, 
informational front. So, for example, that we were able to say Russia is probably going to engage in these false flag operations where they're going to stage a pretend explosion in Russia that ostensibly were caused by Ukrainians and things like that. And it really took away their weapon. It almost seemed that uh, it it took away the the element of surprise and and their own timeline for doing this. It it seemed to put them off guard because we're not used to declassifying that information. The problem with declassifying it is, you know, do we blow sources and methods? We blow sources and exactly, right. But, you know, mo- moving to sort of um, the other side of it, which is the individualized side, you know, there was, we, I think I mentioned before we started, the, uh, the DOJ uh, opened up today, uh, announced today, what are they, I keep blanking on the name, as a klepto capture task force that they're going to yeah. organize with a whole bunch of other countries. And, and one of the, you know, again, the bar stool or pub stool in England, uh, complaints that people make about, you know, wor- the world today has been um, the inundation of the capitals of a lot of European countries and the states uh, with um, oligarch money, buying up all the properties and hiding behind all these shell games. And there's a, there's a whole neighborhood near Westminster, in the capital in, in, in London, that's basically just oligarch homes. I mean, that's what they all say they are. No one can quite figure it out whose it is. And and it seems to be like a, a whole movement now to sort of know your client type of laws across the board that could really, really change the landscape. What, what do you see coming down the line there? And how do you think that impacts, that'll probably impact your clients or, or, or sort of small to mid-sized businesses generally? Yeah, I think a little history here is important. In, in, in 1999, the bank regulators came out with a, regula- a proposed regulation de- demanding that banks, quote unquote, know your customer. Right. Uh, the banks all complain. They say, we don't want to be big brother. We don't want to be in this business. That's your job. And then 9-11 happened and everyone got on board. They rebranded Know Your Customer to Customer Identification Program. And, and that was the case for a while. And, and then there's an a, a international organization called FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, which actually gives grades for every country as to their anti-money laundering regime. They, they graded us poorly because what we weren't doing is ascertaining the beneficial ownership behind some of these smaller LLCs and the like. And so just like you and I probably both crammed for our finals, right before America was going to get its next exam from FATF 10 years later, we wrote a rules capturing that beneficial ownership information, requiring banks to say, you know, who is the owner, the 25% owners, or who is the management official? Well, just recently in in, um, last year, uh, the uh, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, which is a sister agency to OFAC, was tasked with actually creating a database. So now it's no longer going to be banks that have to obtain that information, but it's going to have to be those those shell companies and, and other companies as well that, that need to provide that information to FinCEN. So it'll be FinCEN responsible for collecting the information, disseminating the information, creating transparency around who owns and who controls some of these um, companies that have been used to engage in money laundering, terrorism financing, and the like. Yeah, well, it's not just money laundering and terrorism financing. A lot of it is is hiding. I mean, it was in the Panama Papers, and there was another one that recent that, 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 uh, I forget what it's called. A lot of wealthy individuals um, have offshore their their assets whether it's to you know tax avoidance schemes that may or may not be perfectly legal 
or just to for for an anonymity. I can't pronounce that word. To be not for me anonymous. Um, and anonymity. Yeah, that's the word. Um, <laughs> it's a New York accent. So, uh, where do you see that happening? Do you see sort of a, a trend towards greater transparency that it's going to be harder to uh, hide your assets, especially you know, there's the U.S. also, but especially you know, in other countries, to the extent you can speak to that, they often don't require you to give global reporting of your non-domestic assets, and and you sort of have the situation where you can be very you know squeaky clean in the U.K. and but God knows what the hell you own elsewhere because it's not relevant to the tax authority. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're going to see, we have been seeing is, you know, the Panama Papers and, and similar leaks. Uh, you know, what, what they did is they basically disseminated that information to uh, news news outlets in the different countries so that it, it wasn't like WikiLeaks where they just threw out the raw data. They, they actually provided the information to each country so and, and that each of those countries knew who those players were and were able to do a deep dive and write stories, you know, hundreds of reporters delving right. through the information. And, and so I think to some extent that's going to be the wave of the future through, you know, again, we, we always complain about leaks and there's some leaks that ostensibly you know, depending on which side of it you are, ha- has some more benign attributes to it. In in this case, it's outing, in effect, those who are cheating the system, skirting the system, uh, doing nefarious things, allegedly. And in, in that context, I, I would expect that uh, through the DOJ's new uh, kleptocracy, uh, you know, program. Klepto Capture, now I got it. Klepto yeah. Capture program is I would assume that they are mining that information that's out there in the public to see where the Russian oligarchs have parked their money and, and will go through methodically to capture that. Do you, do you see more international cooperation or do you have any international cooperation on your day-to-day? Yeah, I, I don't see that in my day-to-day because mainly we're working with the community and regional banks. I, I am following it, obviously, like many people are to see, you know, it's amazing to see Switzerland getting on board with some of these. Right. I mean, you know, they, they, they were neutral with respect to the Nazis and, and yet they have picked a side with respect to Putin, uh, which is, you know, fascinating history on both, on both accounts, but no, it, it has been interesting to see uh, the, the, the way in which Putin has really re-energized NATO, re-energized the, um, you know, the, those nations who believe in the rule of law, and and I think even if if I'm sitting in Putin's cabinet, I'm thinking all of this is counterproductive because you know our athletes can't compete on the world stage. We're being shut out in a way that um, I, I think will be hard for countries to forget about. You know the ways in which um, Russia has acted on the world stage. You know we can start with the Olympics and world sports and how you know they they consistently seem to be popping up in, in doping scandals and things like that. And I, I think the world has just seen, you know, maybe we should take stronger steps here uh, across the board against their malign activities. I mean, you see, you know, there, there've been folks who have been complaining about Putin since 2000 or complaining about, uh, you know, I mean, this isn't Putin's first rodeo, with no, respect for sure. to, you know, what he's done in Chechnya, what he's done in Estonia, what he's done in, in other countries. And and so in Georgia, obviously, and then and then Crimea in 2014, you know, 
he this is him. I mean, no one should be surprised by these actions. No, for sure. For sure. This may be so, his last rodeo. He's turning 70 and maybe he wants to do one last shot. Go but, out with a, well, let's hope he doesn't go out with a bang. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think he's he's looking long term. He, you know, the short term sanctions on his country, unless he gets deposed, he he's thinking about in a hundred years, will the historians write a book that he uh, reunited? Great. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, so so turning a little bit more practical. So uh, I advise a lot of small companies. Some of them um, are LLCs, and they try to hide beneficial ownership of patents because they don't want people to know right away. I mean, they'll tell the courts, but they don't want it to be public and whatnot. But but you know, just sort of turning it turning it backwards. Now that we've talked about the grand the grand strategy and the grand scope of things. How, how do you see? Well, well, I imagine the answer is not much in the short run, but how do you see all of these uh, chess pieces moving on the sanction stage and the geopolitical stage and impacting you know, the compliance requirements for small to mid-sized companies and banks, including banks? And, and don't forget, you know, when I mentioned OFAC and, you know, I mainly deal with in, in the context of financial institutions, but I also advise other clients on dealing with OFAC because everybody in the United States needs to deal with OFAC. Uh, and, and even foreign companies that have American presence, they need to deal with OFAC. OFAC has some significant ability to impose civil money penalties. To Can do... you give the acronym again for, for our listeners? Sorry, OFAC. It's the Office of Foreign Assets, and that's plural, Assets Control. Office of Foreign Assets Control. And they actually have a guidebook. Uh, that talks about compliance that they really expect everyone to do, not just highly regulated institutions like banks. And so what I would encourage your listeners and, and your clients to think about is how OFAC can impact them, particularly when we're dealing with you know Russian and Ukrainian type sanctions. Because for example, um, you know, OFAC has a list called the SDN list. It's a specially designated national list. That's a list of individuals and entities with whom and with which uh, you need to block and freeze their accounts. But OFAC has this other insidious rule that says it's not just whomever on that public list, but any 50% subsidiaries of that list. And guess what? That 50% list doesn't exist. So the government doesn't tell you who they are. You, you are, in effect, uh, expected to either figure out yourselves or hire a third party to figure out yourselves. Right. And I've talked to some of these companies who do it, and they not just figuratively, they literally hire former Russian rocket scientists to pour over documents in Russia to figure out who the 50% subsidiaries are of some of those sanctioned entities on the OFAC yeah. list. That wasn't an issue when we were sanctioning terrorists because they were living in a cave. Um, but when you have Russian banks and Russian entities that have very complex subsidiary uh, institutions as part of their organization, that become very daunting. And I so, imagine that also would be impacting on the ex export control list, because I know in the context of in patent litigation, for example, uh, if you're doing document review, export control becomes a very big issue because you can't allow third party vendors who may or may not be in the United States and may or may not be citizens of countries that are you know, on the kosher side of the export control list, review documents, technical documents. 
And it that's right. And, and then you have some of these that are dual use, right? Where you think, you know, this doesn't feel like a military object that that's uh, restricted, but but they are. Mm-hmm. And so between that and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and things like that, it, it's really important to know who is in your ecosystem and yep. what their not just what your compliance regime is, but what theirs is. Right. So, John, uh, how do how do our how do our folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you and your practice? Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, all my information is on on our firm's website, uh, bfkn.com. B is in boy, F is in Frank, K is in kilo, N is in November, and you can just look up my name. All my info is there. And then we also have a website for our Center for National Security Human Rights Law. And within that is that crucial uh, hyperlink as well, where for those who are interested in resources, either in national security law or Holocaust and law issues, we've got plenty of great uh, free resources that are there. Be happy with chat with anyone. And uh, this has been a real blast. This has been great. Thank you so much, John. And uh, thank you everyone for listening.